Hey everyone, welcome to the B2B Power Hour podcast, where we release special interviews with marketing and sales leaders, as well as our live show, all in audio format. If you haven't already, make sure to follow Nick and I out on LinkedIn. Our profile links are in the description, or you can also just search for us or B2B Power Hour. Now on to this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to B2B Power Hour. Good morning, Nick. I am the other co-host of this show, Morgan Smith. I think we're just going to have to keep that joke running. I'm the other guy who got dragged in. <laughs> I almost feel like you need to walk in, though, and be like, oh, hey. yeah, <laughs> hi, <laughs> happy Friday, everyone. <laughs> uh, welcome to B2B Power Hour. I am thrilled for this topic this morning. I think that this is something you and I have both chatted about a bunch, and I'm so psyched to dive in. And you, I realized when I was thinking about this, that uh, loyalty and family reunions actually have a lot in common. Okay, go for it. <laughs> I want to know. There's always like those two people that you have in your family are kind of opposite spectrums. We'll always start, we'll start with the one that I enjoy the most. So I have a grandma that always goes above and beyond. And every time you go and see her at an event, she makes sure she comes over to go and see how you're doing, what you've been up to. It's genuinely curious and wants to know everything about what's going on, calls on your birthday, and makes every single effort to be part of your life, even though nobody told her to. Like, it, it's just a role that she owned and takes pride in doing it. And then on the other side, I had this cousin. And then every about three to six months starts a new MLM or like a new sales project. And so every time you see them, Hey, Nick, can I just get a little bit of your time? You're like, oh my God, no. <laughs> and it's just an endless pitch. And it, mm. it's never, I actually question whether or not this cousin knows me. Right. Like whether the anything about relationship is genuine or not. Yeah. But, th but there is no relationship. I, right. I don't think my cousin actually knows anything about who I am and what I do. Mm. And so think of that back to loyalty in business. You have those salespeople that nobody told them that it was their job to do retention. And the whole process, they were curious and they wanted to get to know their customers and they wanted to see how the process was going, if their promises were coming through, if the process was up to their, and they're genuinely curious. They want to know, is it working? Is it not? How can I help? And they put the effort in on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. And then you have the other ones where, when do you hear from them? Only when they want something. Yeah. There's something new to sell. Right. And I'll ask you, who do you think if I got a text in the middle of the night, I would jump in my car, drive the three hours, go and see. Yeah, definitely the grandma. But it's earned. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the part that I cannot stress enough why brand loyalty drives the most profitable business is because it's earned business. Easy business is easily taken away. If you didn't do anything to earn that, if you didn't solve a major problem, or if you didn't come back from a mistake and show your value, this doesn't matter. And the thing is, I see so many sales people waiting for someone to give them permission. <laughs> I can't because it's not my job. Right. And so what, what are you waiting for? And I know it's hard because even sales managers and leaders put a lot of pressure on salespeople just to hit numbers. Mm -hmm. But 
the most profitable business. If you look at the cost of acquisition, you've already acquired that customer to go and talk to them about something else. Once you know them really well and they trust you, Mm -hmm. that's the most profitable business because that you've already paid your dues in that first sale. Mm -hmm. The next sale, you're allowed to go deeper. They invite you to go deeper, to be a more strategic part of their business because now you have trust and you've shown you can fulfill your promise. Yeah. I, I talk to companies every single week and I look at where their money is being spent. And I would say less than 10% of companies, unless it's a major issue, look at retention and growth. Yep. Yeah, I, I think obviously there are some industries where retention is an integral part of the business model. So if you're selling like subscription software, the core metric for your company's revenue is MRR or ARR, right? Like monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue. And if that's how, what you sell and how you sell, then you get it. Like, cause you're driven, right? Like the, that's the only way the company stays afloat. But even in those industries, I find the objectives are misaligned from leadership. And so um, to your point about the cost of acquisition being zero, it is for somebody who's already a customer or close to zero uh, or a fraction of what it is to actually acquire a new customer that creates uh, an opportunity for salespeople, for your service teams, for your leaders to generate business off of customers who already, at least at a basic level, know, like, and trust you. And this is what's funny to me as a marketer. We talk all about you know, get somebody to know, like, and trust your company. Get somebody, right? People only buy from brands that they know, like, and trust. And yet all of that conversation is focused on acquiring new customers. <laughs> it's it's a total blind spot when it comes to your existing customers. As I, I don't know if I've said before on one of these live shows, but I know you and I've talked about this before. There's only three ways to grow a business. There's only three levers at your disposal. Acquisition, you get new customers. Frequency, you get your existing customers to buy from you again, and pricing or increasing the average dollar of every sale, the uh, average amount per sale. And we have historically overweighted, and I say we as B2B in general, overweighted our investment in acquisition. And I think that's because it's honestly kind of easy. I don't mean easy in like a like, oh, it's very straightforward sense, but the technology exists now that is really easy to run an ad and it's really easy to optimize a funnel and it's really easy to, you know, pass along some Calendly uh, <laughs> sign up, add the calendar to talk to an SDR. All of this tech has enabled the acquisition cycle to be faster, to be easier, to be automated. And so because I believe of all of that shiny technology, we, uh, uh, systematically overinvest in the acquisition of new customers because that's how you make more revenue, right? But we, at the same time, forget that there's also frequency <laughs> and there's also increasing the average amount of per sale, which is you have your existing customers. Can you sell them something else? And this is one of the companies that I think about has uh, a client of mine. They sell a fairly high dollar product, right? It's a it's a manufactured product uh, and it's fairly specialized. And they could just, they could just stay in that industry, right? They could sell this highly specialized manufactured product. And so the way it's like a one-time purchase. 
sort of product. And so frequency is a hard thing for their business to create because most of their customers are only going to buy one of them. They're not going to buy five of them. They don't need to buy five of them. And yeah, so you're at the end of the day, you only have the ability to acquire new customers or increase the average amount per sale and sell higher price models, et cetera, et cetera, upsell, cross-sell, whatever. But they decided as a part of their marketing strategy, because they understood their customers to roll out additional services, additional um, uh, features, additional online training, all the other things that they could sell for a price that gets those existing customers to come back to them and buy from them again. It's not the same product, right? They're buying a different product, but because they already know, like, and trust the brand enough to have bought a very, fairly expensive, highly specialized product, asking them, do you want this? <laughs> we think you would want all of this additional training or support that invites the customer to come back and buy again. And so getting customers to buy from your brand again is not necessarily having them buy the same thing. And that's why brand loyalty isn't product loyalty. It's brand loyalty. <laughs> the reason that Apple can roll out a new iPhone and a new iPad and a new Mac and all the rest of it is because people are loyal to Apple, not to the iPhone. And I mean, some people are really loyal to the iPhone, but that's because they're loyal to the brand, not necessarily the product. Um, yeah, so the, those three engines, I think, are not necessarily overlooked, but skewed in the ways that companies invest in them. Because as especially from a marketing side, we spend 90% uh, of our time getting new customers. And that's because the technology is there that we can juice the numbers. We can go run an ad. We can go, you know. It's even simpler than that. Like, yeah. I, I love where you just went because you highlighted some things that just aren't talked about. Mm. Think of most people's go-to-market strategy. <laughs> when you look at the depth, the depth that they go in their go-to-market strategy, it doesn't look beyond a quarter because they're not fulfilling cash flow requirements in the first 90 to 180 days, which leaves them stranded. So they can't take this multi-step approach where they have a lead generator that they then is that initial get in the door and then they go and move on to the next service. And so I think this has got to be one of those things when you're thinking about loyalty is what, where do you want to drive it? So do you want to be the business that bases their business model on lenses more? So as you are, and this, this goes back to like win without pitching and like two bobs and David T Baker, do you go and do the model where you have a set amount of clients, 12 to 20, and all you're doing is you're replacing them with better clients as you go. And that's how you're growing your business. Mm -hmm. Or do you have like a SaaS model where you have initial lead gen and you know that your lifetime value is your initial sales, what, 10 to 25% of the value. Mm -hmm. And then there's strategic points where as you become more aware of the brand, of the offering and the value to you, and you work with that brand, you'll also increase your value, like mm -hmm. HubSpot, like mm -hmm. what they've done with their usage model. I can't tell you which one is best. I've seen many industries take many approaches, but I haven't seen many industries do it on purpose. Right. And this is the thing that I was seeing. So I was just on Sales Navigator yesterday, and I was curious, based on Sales Navigator, and th these not numbers might be fluffy, I didn't verify them, but I was looking at companies that had a headcount of over 50%. And what did I see? 
I started to see some commonalities and it was a consistent go-to-market strategy. They had a great marketing system and it was interesting looking at their valuation or potential revenue versus headcount. And it's interesting to see too, where were they expanding? I would love to actually do some meta analysis over time and look at where it's like marketing versus sales. If they're just hiring outbound salespeople and how scalable that is versus sales and marketing and doing like a full like rev ops. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think you need to really look at your, your strategy mm-hmm. as more than just short term so that you're actually adding those pieces together over time to build something bigger. And I just don't see that. I don't see any companies taking this approach because they can't satisfy that short term. And I think just because the conversations I'm having with sales leaders, it's because they're using outdated traditional practices Mm. that aren't how customers want to buy now. If I, and like thinking of Chris Walker and when he asks, if I put on a form for a sales leader, how do you want to buy? Getting cold called will probably happen 0% of the time. How many companies have that as their main strategy for customer acquisition? So many. And I think part of what we're teasing out here, which I want to state explicitly is every business has short-term obligations. You have to keep the ship afloat, especially when you're early on and especially if you're bootstrapping. And your go-to-market strategy needs to be effective with modern tactics so that you can generate the revenue to keep it going. And yet, a short-term go-to-market strategy is not going to drive a long-term profitable business. And that's some of the topic of today of like creating loyalty. And I want to dive into this with you around the experience of the buying process, around the service experience and uh, creating something intentionally for these customers that leads to a more profitable business in the long run because of just the economics of acquiring those customers. You already have customers. And if you can create loyalty and engender loyalty to your product, to your brand, that means that in the long run, you're going to spend a lot less money to generate the same amount of revenue. And that uh, means more profit, obviously. Uh, What I think is interesting that you pointed out, um, especially from a go-to-market side and especially from the sales side, is that there is a traditional way, I think, of doing business that we're (laughs) part of the tagline of the show, obviously, that is the way it's always been done. And I think sales is dominated by outbound cold calling and marketing generates marketing qualified leads, which are mostly just names and emails. And then it's a it's a it's a game of numbers. How you know how as big as possible, let's create a funnel, let's generate awareness, you know, the funnel diagrams. I don't even care about the cycles anymore, but you know, there's like awareness, interest, something and something, and you drive them down the funnel. Yeah. And so you try and get the law, large numbers, as many people who put in their name and email to come down the funnel and uh, become customers. And I think that is a disservice to your brand, especially today. I think it will matter most in about two to three years time. I think it matters today, but because the landscape has shifted, especially as a result of COVID and people's preferences have changed around how they want to buy. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. They want a digital experience. They want or a digitally enabled experience. Those 
meeting buyer's expectations, meeting those expectations allows us as leaders to create loyalty to a brand because that means people are going to like the way that you sell. People are going to say, wow, this company gets me. Like that's every, <laughs> every marketer wants a qualified prospect to land on the site and say, oh my gosh, these folks get me or these yeah. folks get what I'm going for, right? And that has to get nailed down as sort of a starting point to creating loyalty, obviously is understanding your audience. It's understanding their preferences for the buying experience. And it's understanding exactly the problems that they're experiencing and laying out very clearly and simply how you help solve those problems and create benefits in their life for their company. But not just on a website. That but not just on a website. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was honestly the biggest mistake that I've made in the past couple of years is I assumed that the end all be all was a website and great web design and SEO and a great content strategy and the whole like HubSpot inbound marketing program. Mm -hmm. And then I started to really pay attention thanks to some great influencers and also just some major purchases that I had to make. And I started to realize that my assumptions were very wrong and the people that were feeding the information were also off as well. Mm. And so it, it didn't make sense. And so, yeah, like how much does a website really matter. I think that you need to have a little, like you have to have some presence and it needs to be optimized. So it's easy to get a hold of you in a way that they want. But how many companies have a strategy outside of content marketing and web design? Yep. I'm still here. Apparently I'm having video difficulties this morning, Nick. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, one second, continue on your rant. I'll get this fixed in a second. Kate sounds good. Yeah, I, I, even as a salesperson, like how many times have I just not wanted to call leads that came in from the website because they're just not quality? And it's be, it's just we're taking such a short term approach to brand that it's not long enough. And I can even compare it to the gym. There you go. You got your camera back. When I used to go to this one specific gym. It was a kind of a, a blend between powerlifting and bodybuilding. And so they had specialty equipment and it was super clicky. And when I first showed up, I'd say hello to people and I didn't even get a smile or a look. After about a couple of weeks, I started to get more people that were looking at me and like smiling, like actually like I was a human being and I had a presence. It took a couple months for me to said, always say hello and show up on a regular basis that people started to talk to me. If that happens in real life, that's how people interact in communities. Why would you have a brand off, off of one touch point? Oh gosh. We talk, you know, we talk about companies and like my, my going back to my grandma, my grandma did set that precedent of who she was and how, what I could expect of her from one visit. Mm-hmm. Was it two? Was it three? It was a hell of a lot more than 10. But isn't that how we associate with things is experience over time? Totally. Well, and also the funny, 
having been a marketing guy and learning a lot about sales and diving in with clients about this and working with you, I'm always surprised that the traditional model of B2B sales doesn't think about like you're actually selling to people. Like, and, and people are people. People like to build trust and, and need trust and need relationships. And they need the same things that consumers do in a direct-to-consumer business or a B2C model. Like, we're still selling to people in the B2B world. It just happens that there's probably more people involved selling to a business and the stakes are different. It's not just somebody's personal credit card, right? It's a business's line of credit or their cash that they're actually investing in something, but you're still selling to people. And an experience is not, as you say, created based on one touch point. It's not just one thing that people say, oh, this is the brand that I want right? Like people can end up on your website and think you're the coolest people ever and never buy from you because they don't have an experience with you. As you were saying earlier, nowadays, um, the, the, uh, content engines that really drive, uh, inbound do not sit on a website. They're in podcasts, they're in video, they're out, they're on, uh, what Chris Walker's term, dark social, right? They're in community groups. They're, um, sometimes yes, they're paid advertising. Sometimes it's re-splicing that content. All of those things together create an aggregated experience for your buyer. So over time, as you say, an experience over time, they get to know who you are. So by the time they probably end up on your website, they might be really excited to buy from you. And that can create that experience of loyalty on the front end. And then there's so much more, which I definitely want to get into on the back end about what a company is required to do um, to understand and engender brand loyalty. Yeah, absolutely. Did you want to go and dive into that or the one thing sure. that you were going? Yeah, let's, let's, let's go dive into that. So, so what needs to happen on the back end? Yeah. I mean, one of the questions that I hear often about this is, well, how do we understand we have a loyal brand, right? We're doing all this stuff on the front end. How do we understand that people are loyal to us? And obviously the easiest answer to that is that you have revenue from existing customers. <laughs> it's not hard. It's very straightforward. You can uh, do a survey of your customers and get some sort of net promoter score to understand how, you know, how likely somebody is to refer you to somebody else. You can look at your actual referral rates um, if you are tracking them. And if you're not, you should be. Those are proxies, though. They're not exactly loyalty. There's no I don't think there's actually like a single silver bullet metric to understand how well or how likely your existing customers are to refer you or how loyal they are to your brand. But certainly looking at the things that would be true if people were loyal to your brand is important, like your customer lifetime value. Is it increasing? Uh, your repurchase ratio. What percentage of your sales are coming from existing customers versus new customers? Like though, if those things are higher, if existing customers are purchasing a higher and higher amount, that means likely that you have uh, a great brand experience and you're creating loyalty on the back end. But really, um, I think that there are three pillars to creating brand loyalty. Uh, and we, I know, we added this to our description. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the first pillar in my experience is that RevOps, revenue operations, is a foundational strategy for growing your business. And what I mean by that is, in a revenue operations mindset, you're aligning your marketing, your sales, and your service teams. 
in order to generate inbound, outbound sales, of course, as well as delivering on your promises to those customers that you sold in a really amazing and delightful customer experience. You're sharing intelligence among those different teams. You are adaptable and agile as a result of that intelligence. You're building a revenue engine for your company that isn't solely based on, let's say, marketing driving unqualified leads um, to a sales team that does a lot of outbound work <laughs> and a service team who's just kind of like there to help customers when they need. I think uh, a seamless brand aligned experience is where brand loyalty starts. And this is what we had touched on earlier. If you, and the reason I say brand aligned is every industry has different expectations. If you're buying delivery pizza, you have sort of an expectation about how that pizza is going to show up. But if you buy pizza out of the freezer at a grocery market or a grocery store, you know how it's probably going to taste. There's those are they technically the same industry? I don't know. But the experience of buying those things are different. And so customers have a different experience about what the final product will be. So if you have a brand or your business has a certain promise uh, or a certain goal of an experience that you want to deliver to your customers, maybe you want to make sure that you come across as extremely luxurious and elegant, like you're playing high dollar value, you want white glove service, like that has to be the buying experience. You don't want to be, <laughs> you don't want super slimy guys trying to sell stuff, right? You want that white glove service, that accompanying in the journey. But that's because the point of your business, you know that that sort of experience is going to sell. Obviously, to our original point, it starts with knowing your audience. Other companies need a brand aligned experience that's entirely digital. They're selling a software product. You want people to be able to sign up, demo, pay all without ever talking to someone. And that's because the expectations for that industry is that's how it should be done. And I think the more that you can understand your competition and the lay of the land in your industry, the more you'll have a thumb on what should my brand experience be? What should my buying experience be? Because that to me is the wellspring of all loyalty. If you nail the front end, you get customers excited to work with you, to buy from you. And then there's other, there's the other two pillars about the back end, which we can get to in a second, but I didn't know if you wanted to jump in on this. <laughs> Not yet. I'm, I'd like okay. to have you keep going because what I would like to do after is talk about AI machine learning and you think mm -hmm. it'll change the landscape. So I don't want to go and derail you too much. Okay. If you want to <laughs> go over your other two pillars. Well, I'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah. So pillar one was that RevOps Revenue operations is a foundational strategy in your business. You are intentionally aligning your marketing, your sales, and your service experience so that it is brand aligned, so that you're delivering something that your customers want. Uh, pillar two is actually pretty straightforward. You deliver on your promise and you build trust. And I wish I didn't have to say this. <laughs> I wish this was, I wish this was just obvious and this is a part of doing business, but it's not. And we both know this, that companies promise the sky and they don't deliver or they promise X and they deliver like half of X. Well, and it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think that there are as many reasons as there are pieces of sand on a beach. <laughs> Obviously there's leadership misaligned. Obviously you could have uh, sales teams not properly trained. And so they try and over promise and then the company has to under deliver because they're not, you know, 
equipped to do so. Right. Or expectation that they assume that they have to do that because that's what everybody's doing. Yep. And so that's the only way they can get their edge is by making yep. a bigger promise. Misaligned. They're not incentives. the one delivering. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Misaligned incentives. And that comes back to uh, pillar number one about revenue operations and having those teams aligned. If yeah. sales understands what service is capable of doing or what their product teams elsewhere in the company are capable of doing, that sales team is going to be better at delivering on promise pillar number two, which is delivering your promise. And that's because obviously in that uh, utopian business here, though the incentives for sales are aligned across those different teams as well. They're not misaligned. You're not misincentivizing a certain kind of sale or you're just needing to hit quota or you need to make X amount of outbound so that we can have the law of large numbers drive down our funnel, right? Those things are working in concert with each other. So when it comes to actually delivering what you sell, you're actually solving a problem that they have. You're as good as you say you are, and you have delighted customers from that product. I mean, this is the other thing which we've ranted about before, I think, on a live show, in that developing a product or developing a service should be developed for someone. If you just built a cool product in your back closet with a team of engineers, it might be a really cool product, but it may not actually solve people's top problems. And so building trust is not just delivering on your promise. It's also understanding how you're solving people's problems, how you're delivering benefits to them. And if you can be honest about who it's not for and who it's not for. But yeah. I was, I, I've just started to see this a little bit, a little bit, but not, not enough where companies are doing like a post-op and they're looking at, okay, who is the right fit? Who was then who saw the most value? Why do they see the most value? And a lot of people tell me, well, we just change our marketing. So it better aligns. That's great. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to Henry Ford. If I would ask what everybody wanted, they would have just said a faster horse. Yep. But look at what Apple did with all the different subtle changes they made mm -hmm. to go and sneak in and like test that out. But, how much of your product or service is actually valuable to the customer? Like Home Depot and Walmart were both supposed to be cheaper and give you access to a warehouse style buying experience that was based on price. Mm -hmm. They were never designed to be the best service, which is now being demanded of them because of other options mm -hmm. because competition because market forces. Yeah. <laughs> but yep. I, don't, I don't think we talk about that enough that you can't, if you want people to be loyal, mm -hmm. you have to, they need to hear you say no to something as well. Mm -hmm. I think that is so crucial and comes back to the early part of our conversation today, which is the short-term go-to-market strategies, again, overemphasize getting new customers, right? They, they over-invest in acquisition. And the danger that occurs when you over-invest in acquisition is you say yes to too many kinds of customers. It's a trap. Where's Admiral Akbar, right? It's a trap. Uh, that that is a great way to have customers not buy from you again because you salespeople and confuse salespeople because you're delivering something for what four or five different kinds of people and so you're trying to build all this different stuff for all these different kinds of people when instead you could say here i built this for you but not for you right i built this for exactly what you're experiencing and you're welcome to buy it, but I'm not going to like really force yeah. it here. We're building it's it for these people. It's super counterintuitive what, for totally. most people think. And what I'm seeing in the market is people as they're getting stressed, as mm. they're not hitting their goals or like money's getting tight, 
that discipline, that funnel is now opening to more and more people because they're just trying to go and hit cash flow so they can pay bills. And that is such a dangerous hole to dig because if I'm a salesperson, who do you think is going to get more loyalty? The one that handpicks who they, who they want to work with because they know that they're actually, when they do a discovery meeting or they're doing that initial, they're actually going and seeing, well, is this a good fit or not? Right. They're actually assessing a fit. They're not just taking anything because they need the money or they need to go with not either them or the company, <laughs> even the money. But it's no. so critical because even marketing for marketing to support sales, they need to know as well. And those two, like we're talking about RevOps, they need to talk mm-hmm. and they need to talk and share that information right down to service mm-hmm. so that they know who's getting the most bang for their buck, mm-hmm. who's working the best, where's the most margin. But a lot of this strategy isn't communicated because it's, it's stressful going through this and they stop acting like a startup because they get too established and this communication erodes and turns into politics. Mm-hmm. And I see so many companies that get to this point where they should just explode, but they get stifled in their growth because they're investing in the wrong things and they're still operating like a stick in the mud. Like, yep. this is the way we've always done it. And that's how it turns into is this is the way we're always done it. This is the way, you know, it worked for me. I did all of the hard work. So you didn't have to. So instead of trying to think through this, just do what I'd say. Yep. Well, and what I see too it, in that area, the reason that uh, the teams are not aligned, the reason marketing and sales don't talk to each other or aren't <laughs> moving in the same direction down the path is because they have frankly, separate metrics to hit. I True. I mean, the, the promise of RevOps is that you're basically aligning a core set of metrics for all of your teams. And the functions, the disciplines themselves of those teams are different. They serve different parts and pieces of the process, but they all should be aligned in hitting the same metrics. And I think when a marketing team is incentivized to, let's say, hit MQLs, And then when you have a sales team aligned to hit quota, those teams are not necessarily moving in the same direction. And we know that. It's easy to manipulate. Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Every time you talk to a salesperson, like, well, yeah, well, I made 150 phone calls and I did so many emails. Yep. You know, you can't bullshit it. Yeah. Revenue. Deal signed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So if you look if sales and marketing aligned on pipeline. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we also really started to get clear on the stages. Yes. No fluff. Forget the stupid funnel. It's honestly, the funnel doesn't exist anymore. And I'll just go over this really quick. People are evaluating different stages at the same time. The only way they make it through is if all of those stages are evaluated and people are like, yes, this is what I want. Any one of those stages goes off. The whole process is derailed. So we need to stop thinking it's a linear path. Humans are emotional creatures. We are no longer their greatest source of information. They're doing their education and due diligence before they talk to us. So just forget that. And I won't go down the, the whole rabbit hole, but <laughs> it's totally fine. It's such a, I mean, I'm in a hundred percent agreement and alignment too. I, I, I don't think that, I think the funnel is speaks of a mindset of marketing and sales that does not exist in the same organization that has revenue operations or a demand gen program. It's just not like, it's just not the same system. It's not the same framework for those companies to use. 
And I think um, before we forget, I want to get to my third pillar. But yeah, if the pipeline was the one, the thing he issued, and then you looked at win rate and you actually aligned your win rate through those stages. Yep. That would be a game changer in most businesses. Because not only would that actually lead to loyalty, because you're looking mm-hmm. at what, what were the factors that actually influenced buying decisions? And what I think it's going to start to happen is we're going to look either like near transaction or post transaction after to look at how we're influencing satisfaction, which is going to actually lead into retention and growth. Why buy a new iPhone? It's not because you need one. Why do people buy from you? Is it because they really need to go and buy from me again? Right. And this, this answer may differ, but like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, there's, there's uh, some application across industries, but what's, but what you point out is so crucial. And that is that the people begin to decide, I'll say this, people begin to decide whether to buy from you again, from the moment that they start engaging with your business on the first sale. And I feel like that is an underappreciated mindset. And because everything, again, is so focused on just acquiring that customer. Screw the next sale, right? (laughs) We need them now. We need the cash now. Or we want to hit our quota. We want to generate X amount of revenue this quarter or whatever else is a part of your acquisition strategy. That's fine, right? But the mindset that a, a modern team should have is not, how can we get them to buy from us this time? It is, what is the experience we are going to create for this customer so that they become a lifetime customer? And that starts with your marketing. That then continues through your sales. That continues through your service. That continues through just delivering on your promises all the way through your entire business. That's your revenue engine. Because the, after you've acquired them the first time, it's free or extremely low cost to acquire them again, to have them buy from you again. And that leads to revenue and profit at a much lower cost than having to get new customers. Um, so the third pillar, which is related to this, is that a company continues to innovate and delight customers. And this is sort of the example I brought up earlier. So pillar one is that you have an aligned RevOps strategy that's fundamental to your business. You have the right metrics aligned across teams and you're creating a seamless buying experience, right? Pillar two is you deliver on your promises. You have to, you have to build trust. But pillar three is you continue to innovate and uh, delight existing customers. And what I mean by that is that you, you begin to offer more what they want, right? You experiment with different kinds of offers. You don't need to have 10 or 12 different product lines as a result of your innovation. But like the company I'd said before, they have a flagship product. And then knowing their customers, they began to roll out new offers for those customers. And this is, you see this in SaaS all the time. It's a little more subtle where you have existing customers and then you have feature improvements. And so Slack five years ago was very different than the Slack we have today. Some of that is a result of competition in the marketplace and people going to other platforms. And some of it is a result of them understanding their customers more and building in the features that they need. And obviously. Customers trusting them. I think we can't underestimate too, because I, one of the reasons I go back to certain companies is I trust them. I know what to expect from them, but I'm more willing to open up in the process and give better and deeper information 
that are more strategic in my use case. Mm. And I think that's so underestimated because the value comes from the trust and the knowledge exchange. But if I don't trust you, I'm going to go and hold. It's like when you ask somebody, hey, how's it going? The person that you trust you Mm -hmm. answers it honestly. The person that doesn't, it's just a knee-jerk reaction. Hey, I was fluff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fluff response. What I think the role model is in this case for innovation are like YouTube creators or, or streamers. I think they are probably the best example of people who have revenue on the line, their livelihoods on the line based on what they produce for their particular audience. Now, if you're a YouTube creator or a streamer or whatever, it, you're not selling some complex manufactured product or you haven't invested, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into your product. So the table stakes are a little different. But from the innovation process, one thing that I see really successful YouTube creators do really well is they continue to push and experiment and listen to what the audience is actually wanting from them. And then they deliver it. And that is an underappreciated part of innovation. It's not just repricing. It's not just repackaging. It's not just dreaming up some new add-on for your product. It is literally listening to your audience and giving them what they want. And this is a tie-in to what we said previously. If you don't say no to a particular audience, you're going to start having some real difficulties on your innovation because you're going to try and serve too many use cases at once. And I've seen this in in all businesses, it's not just B2B, it is also B2C. Every business struggles with this when they don't have a clearly defined audience that they work with. And that leads them down the road of developing too many things for too many different people. Instead of focusing on a core competency, delivering it well, and then beginning to add on to it and innovate and delight their customers further by anticipating their needs, right? By understanding what your audience is looking for now. You might have built your product five years ago. Well, chances are you made some improvements in the last five years, but also the world has changed in the last five years. Significantly. And staying on top of that means that you have to continue to innovate and uh, delight your existing customers for them to stay loyal to you. Because if you're still delivering the same thing you delivered in 2015, that is a quick way for them to leave to your competition because your competition is probably innovating as well. This is a good time to segue into AI and machine learning. Oh, go for it. But one of the things just to go and kind of tie things up, I don't see a lot of salespeople reapproaching customers post-transaction to Mm. test. Mm -hmm. Because your questions and your statements, you have to really be present and really listen to find that white space. I had a friend that was a a purchaser for a large... uh, machinery mm. like, company. And uh, I was like, okay, I don't want to get way too much information, but per- he worked his way up from the top or worked his way up from the ke- like parts counter, became a purchaser, was the head purchaser for the company. And he noticed the reason why they weren't growing with the repeat customers is they were struggling to service repeat customers in the field. And they were getting frustrated because they lost so much downtime bringing the equipment back to get serviced in shop and they needed it to be done on site. Mm. And so he, he got so fed up, he quit, bought service trucks and literally just serviced those customers to start and ended up getting a huge contract and now works BCL Alberta and Saskatchewan. Amazing. But 
But all he did is he listened Mm -hmm. and he listened and it kept the conversations kept coming up and he kept listening for those conversations after he started to notice and he tested it and it, it was, it was insane. Like his first year, he did like 1.3 or 1.5 million in sales. Wow. And, but he never, all the financing, he, it was all his money. Yep. But that's, that's delivering value. I mean, one of the core, three core elements of a brand is delivering value. And the only way that you continue to deliver value is that you anticipate and understand the needs of the people that you want to sell to. That's it. They have certain things that they're experiencing in the world and you have to go out and, and learn, learn those needs. (laughs) That's, that's it. And, And in the modern or in most, not in the modern, but in many, many organizations where marketing and sales don't talk to each other and where service is kind of its own thing on the back end, what that intelligence has lost. And so marketing and the senior leadership create ideal client personas or brand personas or client avatars or whatever, that's based on their assumptions of how the market works and who they're trying to sell to. And then sales has to still sell the product <laughs> like that. That's a part of their job. And oftentimes those two things are not aligned. The brand persona is not reflective of what sales is actually encountering on the floor. And so when it comes to product development, you're developing it for an imaginary person instead of for a real customer. This is why I say throw out the brand personas. They're not useful. All you need is good sales intelligence and good market intelligence about what your audience actually needs. That way you can serve them all the messages and all the products that they need. And post-transaction is so critical too for service. What are the issues that come across or that are happening when you're servicing that customer? Mm-hmm. Because you're going to learn about who's a right fit, who's not, what you should make changes. And right now, most of what sales doing is buyer enablement. We are supporting buyers to make buying decisions, which isn't persona based. It's company based and how they make decisions and how they communicate which is so different than marketing, yeah. getting internal champions. Like we, we don't have to go in like full yeah. scope into it, but sure. But a lot of the time it's sales and marketing is the only focus. Well, what about service? If I don't, if I've, how many times I've done a management consulting gig where I've sold something yep. and then we go to go service the client and you go, oh crap. Yeah. And I would have known that before we started. I would have, I would never pitch this or I would have recommended something different, or I would never work with them at all because it wasn't either of our best interest. Yep. But how are you supposed to learn that when service never tells you anything? Or they're, or more importantly, they're not incentivized to tell you anything, or there aren't any channels for them to be, to be sharing. And there's not metrics that are aligned, right? Like ser- uh, service in its broadest sense, it could be a product team, delivery team, customer service, customer success, whatever it's called. They have their own metrics to hit as well. And those are not necessarily always aligned with what sales and marketing are attempting to do. And when it comes to RevOps and aligning those teams together, it means getting all of those teams on the same page and moving in the same direction. And that starts with having a shared scoreboard, a shared set of metrics that they're all responsible for. That way, nice sale. it's all synchronized, right? <laughs> it's all it's all matched up and those companies can deliver. The reason, I just really want to hammer this home in this moment. The reason all of that is so important is if any part of that process, it's not world ending if it goes away, but it does damage your loyalty. If any part of that process is disjointed or weird 
or isn't up to your expectations. And service is a really good example about pillar number two, about delivering on your promises and building trust, which is your marketing and sales might be aligned and might be doing a really good job. But when it comes to actually delivering a product or a service, there's a misalignment there and it's not exactly what they want. And I've been the customer in that transaction so many times. I know you have too. We've experienced it and it sucks because you go, oh, I thought this company was it. I thought this product was what I actually needed. And then you get it and you realize, well, it's like 70% there, but it's not exactly what they promised or it's not exactly what I expected. Yeah, I definitely feel like a naive buyer. Yeah. Because I, I, there's so much other choice and you're like, well, this is my trusted brand. I've been with this brand for 10, 15, whatever years. I never looked at anything else because I knew what they would deliver. It one really bad experience that made me feel like I didn't matter at all and they didn't stand behind their promise killed yep. 10, 15 years of marketing and branding and everything else. And I will never deal with them ever again. Yep. It, they, they lost every opportunity. And I actually am mad at myself for mm-hmm. trying to push a relationship mm-hmm. to give them multiple opportunities to fix it. Cause it's almost like I was like, was I wrong in what I assumed? Yeah. Think of how many people are feeling that way about your company. Mm-hmm. Hopefully none, but <laughs> hopefully none, but hopefully not. But, but a reverse version of that story is, uh, is actually in uh, retail space here in Denver. And I think I shared this on LinkedIn once I had invited some friends over and we are going to have a good time. I don't know. It's like a board game night. We're going to eat dinner. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have a bunch of fun. And I ordered ahead to have a local chicken shop deliver food to me. It's called Bird Call. They're here in Colorado, um, mostly in Denver. They're amazing. They're sort of a, a local alternative to Chick-fil-A. And I had ordered in advance. So I would have the food delivered at a certain time. I just didn't want to think about it. You know, I wanted it at a certain time when they were supposed to arrive. That was the point. So I didn't have to guesstimate it. And for some reason, the wires got crossed. Their platform didn't work. There was something weird. And so the delivery driver, I got a text that the delivery driver was going to show up like an hour and a half early and they had fired my food. And so I, I, the customer had to call multiple different people to make sure that the order would not be canceled. And I could, and I just decided to go pick up my food, but then I would cancel the delivery because it was through DoorDash maybe as a partner. And so I'm calling DoorDash, I'm calling the driver, I'm calling the store, making sure the order's still fine. It was not a good customer experience. I'll say that. Mm. I show up to the store when I had promised and um, approach the cash register to pick, pick it up. And she said, oh, hold on, let me go check on that. And now suddenly I'm like, oh God, here we go again. Yeah. The mess up, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and the general manager walks out and she says, I'm so sorry for your experience. Uh, we're getting it fixed on our platform. Something went wrong. We're refiring your food fresh for you right now. Uh, it'll be done in three minutes. And um, so she disappeared back into the kitchen. I was like, okay, this is very nice. She comes back out with the bag. She goes, I threw in some extra cookies and the meals on us. Wow. Now, from a business side, in a high, in a, in a low margin, highly competitive uh, business like retail, Comping two fairly sized meals is actually kind of expensive to the business. 
right? It's an, it, it's expensive. You lost a bunch of money between the stuff that you've been had to throw away and give away and all the rest of it. Yeah, but bought you for life. <laughs> but I'm a lifetime bird call customer now. There's no, I'm never going anywhere else. Well, you've been brought enough on our live show. So obviously it's good. <laughs> See, yeah, it's delicious too. But like that is an example from the service side in which service can actually cost your business money. If you look at it, your profit and loss statement or your balance sheet, you are going to see service, generally speaking, as an actual line item in different ways that is going to cost your business money over the next quarter, 100%, no doubt. There's no question there. And yet, it is going to drive long-term loyalty because those customers are delighted. And so the short-term cost becomes long-term profit. And like Bird Call is the perfect example of that, where I'm literally going to buy from them all the time now. And they're going to earn thousands and thousands of dollars off of me over my life, right? <laughs> I'm just chicken sandwich. Year. <laughs> right. Every year. I know. I... <laughs> so I got a question good. for you then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sum this all up. Would you say that loyalty is emotional? Ooh. Yes. It, but is it purely emotional? No, I, I think it's sort of like the old adage that like people uh, buy with their emotions and rationalize it later. <laughs> I think I think the sort of if we dive into human psychology a little bit, I think most of loyalty is driven by conscious and subconscious impressions of a company. And over time, value. right, perceived value, those get aggregated and people form an opinion. So if they ask if you ask a customer, why don't you like my company? They may give you a very specific story, but it's also equally possible that they're just going to say, ah, it just didn't rub me the right way. And that's because they have, right. They just, you know, they have some of those emotions, but they're also consciously rationalizing their choice. They are saying, no, this isn't the right company for me because of whatever XX reasons. And those are valid too. But I think emotions do drive it, uh, even if they're not the only, the only cause. Interesting. Go for it. Okay. Am I wrong? This no, you're not my head. I'm not going to go there, but. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, they did a study and they were looking at people that had the emotional and logical parts of their brain separated. Mm. Or they lost the higher functioning part of their brain that attached to emotions. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? I have no idea. They had no ability to make decisions. Interesting. Zero. Even the simplest things of what to eat, when to eat. So the reason why when I was listening to your story and I was thinking of my story, the reason why business fails to drive meaningful loyalty metrics is because they think it's logic when it's really emotion. Hundred mm, percent. People are driven by emotion. We all are. And, and if you think you're not, you are, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, like, even if you are extremely technically savvy and you are a numbers person and you, you do the pros and cons list on every purchase you ever make, you're still emotionally driven. And this is, I mean, this is the dirty secret of all marketing is that you tap into those emotions, not the logic side. People will justify whatever they want. People will rationalize any, any buying decision that they will ever make. And 
there there are ways to influence that decision, of course. That I was thinking of well. <laughs> I was thinking of some of the the graphic infographics and stuff you see, and you're like, yeah, we did market research. I was like, yeah. <laughs> yes, you did very strategic marketing research. <laughs> yeah, eight you know, eight out of ten people said this. Really, what choices did you give them, and how did you facilitate that? Totally right. I mean, mm. we're all influenced by the structure of our world and the the options presented to us, and it and it can get really complex. But at a fundamental level, the reason you buy the Ferrari is because Ferraris are cool. Like, and you want a Ferrari and you think you'll look cool in a Ferrari and you want to drive one like that. And all of that's emotional. It's status, it's perception, it's what you can tell yourself about buying a Ferrari and what that means about you. All that's emotional. At the end of the day, whatever it costs, if you can afford it, you'll pay it. Right. And the same goes at a smaller scale, too for any SaaS product, for any product sold in the B2B world, product or service, what your customer will tell themselves when they buy from you. And that, interestingly, does fuel loyalty. Because if you can deliver that emotional experience, and that sounds like a big job, but at the end of the day, if you have a good product and you have the right brand aligned experience and you're delivering on your promise, people are going to be delighted, especially if you're good people, especially if you're nice to them and you build that relationship. They're going to say, wow, this company is amazing. And then they get to go tell their, I don't know, their investor or their board, or they get to tell their vice president or the CEO that we hired this great company. They know exactly what they're doing to solve this problem. And here's why. And all of that, except maybe the here's why part, is emotional. It's all emotionally driven, it, even if there's numbers and, and sense involved. Yeah. Why does yeah. Costco so popular yeah why is amazon so popular yep the thing that people don't weigh into loyalty is risk mm-hmm. you remove the risk of buying or trying away you go yep as a marketer how do you drive loyalty mm. you had to go and do like a really quick and dirty mm-hmm. as a marketer this is this is your check boxes what would you do? Um, I would get extremely clear on the real people that we're actually trying to target and understand them. I mean, that's step one. Check. Do you understand who you're exactly trying to sell for or sell to? Yeah. <laughs> Check. Check. Step two, I think, is you have to tell a story that creates that experience for them when they engage with your business. And storytelling is all the rage right now, especially in marketing. And that story can be constructed across multiple pieces of your creative, across multiple different campaigns. It doesn't have to be an all-in-one. It doesn't have to be one three-minute video you send out. It could be constructed between different pages on your website and a podcast and a content and all the rest of it. But it needs to be a cohesive, brand-aligned experience so that the more people engage with your company on the front end, on the acquisition side, the more they get to know who you are and why you're the perfect fit for them. And so check. And then third, I think that there's a lot of, in this ideal RevOps aligned company, marketing is also going to be driving inbound qualified pipeline. And it, and it is going to take the burden off of sales, most of sales, to do outbound cold work, right? And it's not going to be a hundred percent, I don't think, but as a marketing leader, what you should be looking at is aligning those metrics for your marketing team, not to 
uh, visits or rankings or all the rest of that. Those are sort of second order metrics to me. Those are things that drive your success. They aren't your success. So having a number one ranking is nice, but if you get 10,000 people who visit after that number one ranking and you get one customer, is that a huge success? I don't think so. So having that metric aligned for qualified pipeline is like step number three. I think there's a lot of other little stuff, especially on the back end and helping and supporting service and sales and all the assets and the creative and supporting your customers. But if I really had to nail down three things, it would be those three. Under, understanding um, your client, building a seamless acquisition experience or buying experience and um, aligning those internal metrics to make sure that they're actually driving inbound qualified pipeline that supports your revenue and not just names and emails in a spreadsheet. Can I add a number four? Go for it. Embrace the unexpected. Mm. One of the best things you could possibly do is rectify a mistake. It is that it might look expensive on that one purchase, like you had mentioned, but that could cost you a customer for life and they talk. Mm-hmm. And that is how people make buying decisions mostly is off of referrals, whether in person or virtually. Mm-hmm. So embrace the, the unexpected and embrace when people are not happy because that is your opportunity to take the risk out of it and show them that you care. Totally. Nick, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Uh, this has been why brand loyalty drives the most profitable business. I think we've attacked that question in numerous different angles. (laughs) Um, again, the three, I mean, you can measure loyalty however you want to measure loyalty. Uh, those core metrics you can decide but they are going to be related to your bottom line um, at some level, or they have to be. But the three core pillars that we talked about today was that RevOps is, is a fundamental or foundational strategy for your business. You deliver on your promise and you build trust and you continue to innovate and delight existing customers. Those three things are really going to drive brand loyalty. And at the end of the day, getting those three things accomplished is also going to drive your most profitable business because of the economics of those decisions. Um, anything, any last words before we sign off this morning? Yeah. If you're a salesperson, the reason why you should care is loyal customers are the best customers. They know what to expect of you. They come to you. They know who you are. They know what, what your services and products are. They might even ask you for your advice. You, you skip a lot of the frustration and you go right to the work we actually like to do. So if you're working with a company that doesn't really embrace loyalty, start with your LinkedIn presence. Start by marketing yourself. Don't wait. Nobody's going to give you permission. And if you're worried about hitting numbers, just do a little bit each day because loyalty pays off. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, happy Friday, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Power Hour podcast. Make sure to subscribe to catch all of our upcoming episodes, and we'll see you next time.